this with me. This is God's written living word to me. What he thinks about me. It reveals who God says I am and tells me what God says I have. Because it's how God thinks, I choose to believe and act on what I'll read. And therefore, I am transformed. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 1. We've made it as far as the salutation so far. (laughs) That's good progress, considering all of the meat and wonderful information that the Apostle Paul put in this powerful book, Romans chapter 1. Our text for this morning will begin in verse 7, and I am going to be reading from the New Living Translation, starting in verse 7. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be His holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in Him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all of my heart by spreading the good news about His Son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so that I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, But I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit. That's not the Holy Spirit. I just lost my place. (laughs) I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I have seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. The main point of what we have been studying, and it continues today, is that the resurrection is the beginning of God's new world. Be sure to listen to part one and two of this series. 
Not only is it a study of the book of Romans, but we've entitled the entire series, The Scandal of Grace. Reviewing from last week's message, we discovered that the definition of good news is that it is not good advice. It literally means good news or to announce the news of God's goodness. That's been twisted today in many circles of Christianity. Good news or the announcement of God's goodness has changed into good advice. Here's how to live. Here's how to pray. Here are the principles to being a better Christian, a better person. And in particular, here's how to be sure that you're on the right track for happiness after death. Take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. Come on now. Most of you that went to Sunday school when you were young or have grown up in the church know that that's exactly the gospel that you heard. Take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. You won't go to hell, and you'll go to heaven. And it's interesting that Jesus talked so little about either. In fact, he talked far more about heaven coming to earth. In verse 4 last week, we discovered that there's a particular word that Paul uses that means marked out, or that God locates us. He located Paul. He located us. He's marked us out. He's given us a new horizon. Now, the horizon is where the earth meets the heaven or where the earth meets the sky as you look out across and notice that uh, unending, that infinite area where earth seems to touch sky. And isn't that exactly what Jesus taught us to pray? As it is in heaven, so on earth. Your life is marked as a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He has given you a new horizon where heaven is now your standard. Heaven is your standard of health. Heaven is your standard of finances. Heaven is your standard of wisdom. Heaven is your standard in your relationships. It's a new horizon. God's taken you there. And He wasn't inviting us to try a new way of thinking or living that would enable us to behave differently. He was telling us that something has happened that has changed the entire world. That the world is now a different place. And that is summarized very simply by this. The good news that the cross was successful. Beginning in verse 8 through verses 15 now, we have what I call the passion and prayer life of Paul. Let's look, verse 8. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith, or translated trust, your trust in Him is being talked about all over the world. The mirror translation says this, the cosmos is our audience. I have a question this morning. What about your simple trust in Jesus Christ is being talked about? By your friends, by your neighbors, by the fellow employees that you work with, 
What about my trust in the Savior is so real, so tangible, this new horizon, this fact that he's marked me out and relocated me and heaven is now the new norm for my life. What about that is being talked about? Starting in verse 9, he says, God knows how often I, mark that, how often I pray for you. Paul prayed a lot. Then he says, day and night I bring your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all of my heart, spreading the good news about his son. One of the things that I always pray about or pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come to see you at last. Watch this, verse 11. For I long to visit you. We wouldn't even have to announce something like Wednesday night if every individual under the sound of my voice longed for his presence, longed for the company of the saints, longed just to get around each other where we could smile and touch and reach. Last Sunday, quite just led by the Spirit of God, impromptu, certainly not in my notes, the Father asked me to end the service by having a couple of individuals come up and pray. One of them that the Lord told me to have come up and pray was in the restroom. So we waited. That individual came up and began to pray, and the Spirit of God dropped. And what wound up happening is that individual was just surrounded by not preachers, not the professionals, by you, the saints. <laughs> Paul calls you all saints. Saints aren't statues. Please, Pastor Jeff, don't. Don't meddle. You don't pray to saints, you are one. You pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit causes it to manifest in the earth. Why? Because you're on a new horizon. Heaven is now the new norm for you. So a bunch of you saints gathered around this individual up here, and they were in tears. I love that. See, that's the passion Paul was talking about here. That, that's the longing to visit you that he's talking about here in verse 11. We don't need to announce Wednesday night, first Wednesdays, because all of you are going to be here, because I long to see you. I long to be in the presence. I, I long to just see what God's going to do. And whether or not I'm the personal recipient of hands being laid on or a, a personal prophecy or word or anything like that, thank God for that. And there'll be a lot of it Wednesday night. I mean, this guy just, he's going to blow it up. He's bringing a team of people with him. So I have a lot of expectation there. But whether I get a word or not, if I never move from my seat, I know one thing. 
I'll be here adding my faith to that service. Longing to just be, number one, in the presence of God. Number two, in your presence. Assisting what God is doing in the Spirit in your life through my smiles and my hugs and my prayers of faith. That's what Paul's talking about. I long to visit you. Why? Number one, so that I can bring, or in part is the literal word, to you some spiritual gift. Number two, to help you grow in the Lord. And number three, so that when we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith. But watch this. Not only do I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by your faith. Here, here's, here's the deal. That's called body life, verse 11. That's called life in the body, life of the church, this, this living organism that's alive with life and faith and this new horizon. And it's full of impartation. It's full of strengthening and building up. It's full of mutual honor and respect. We, we, we don't have hierarchy here at Genesis. We don't believe in lifting one individual up and putting them on the pedestal. And giving them approbation unduly. In fact, we believe in giving the same approbation and respect and honor to the janitor as we do the senior pastor. So you see, whether you're colonel of the urinal or you're the senior pastor of the church, in God's mind and heart, your horizon is the same. Heaven has touched earth and all of you are saints all of you operate in the supernatural and that's something that we should be longing for it ought to bring us into one another's company with great expectation my jesus why do we have to spend all this money on announcements and bulletins and emails and blogs and blasts and texts and Look back at verse 9. I'm struck by what Paul didn't pray for. Did you get that? <laughs> I'm struck by what Paul didn't pray for. He never prayed for healing. He never prayed for their finances. He never prayed for them to defeat the devil or to hold on, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Why? Because they were marked with a new horizon. Jesus had relocated them. They didn't need to pray and drone and cry and reach and for finances or healing or those kind of things. Why? Cut it because it's part of your sanctification. It's part of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's part of your redemption. It's part of being redeemed back into your innocence. Every one of you is prosperous. Every one of you is walking, not only in healing when you need healing, but you're walking in divine health. Paul prayed very little over many of the things that we spend so much time praying about. Why? Because he realized who he was in Jesus. He realized he had been located with a new horizon. Heaven had come to earth, and he was walking in it. And so where Paul spent most of his time praying was for the needs of others. Just blessing them, praying that he might come to them so that he could impart a spiritual gift and strengthen them in the Lord. And oh, by the way, 
I'm going to need strengthening too. I want to have hands laid on me. I want to receive a word. Isn't that special? Isn't that respect and honor amongst the body? I love that. You see, the fivefold ministry gift of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, they're given as gifts to the ecclesia. Ecclesia simply means the called out ones, or it's the word that Jesus used for church. I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The, the, those that are called out, those that gather, I'm going to build them. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there's a vast difference between a gift and a reward. Francois Dutrois, author of the Mirror Bible, said, and I quote, We are God's gifts to one another. What we are in our individual expression is a gift, not a reward for personal diligence or achievement. These gifts were never meant to establish one above the other or to become mere formal titles, but rather to identify specific and dynamic functions with one defined purpose that the body would minister to itself and grow itself in love. What's your passion? What moves you? Are you challenged in your life right now to change, to move in God, to come up higher, to go deeper? Is your faith being challenged, or have you become mediocre in your spiritual fervor? Let's go to verse 16 and 17, and we'll close this morning with our look at these two verses. And as I do, I want to read something to you. Just a brief story, true story, about somebody I think all of you will probably identify with. In August of 1513, a monk lectured on the book of Psalms in a seminary, but his inner life was nothing but turmoil. In his studies, he came across Psalm 31, verse 1, that says, In thy righteousness deliver me. The passage confused him. How could God's righteousness do anything but condemn him to hell as a righteous punishment for his sins? The monk kept thinking about Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, which says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. The monk went on to say, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy He justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through Open doors into paradise, this monk said. This passage of Paul became to me 
a gateway into heaven. Martin Luther was born again. And the Reformation began in his heart. Imagine that. Martin Luther. Who turned the church world upside down with his 93 theses nailed to the door, all built on one principle, Romans 1.17. Those who are righteous shall live by faith. Let's dissect that. Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed. Are you ashamed of your faith? Are, are you ashamed of Christianity? Are you ashamed of the gospel message? Do you find it difficult to share about your best friend, Jesus, with somebody else because you're concerned about what they'll think about this moral list, this requirement to end their behaviors and become like you before you can sign them up for the club? Such has been our gospel. No, Paul was not ashamed because he believed God got it right in rescuing man from the effect of what Adam did wrong. He was not ashamed because God redeemed mankind back to his innocence, changing the world. Now that's good news. And by the way, it applies to your next door neighbor. It applies to the homosexual and the lesbian. It applies to the thief and the murderer. It applies to that family member that you had such a difficult time with earlier this week on Thursday. You were dreading cutting the turkey and having to listen one more year, one more Thanksgiving to what you have to listen to again and again and again. But did you know that God loves them the same as he loves you and me? Did you know that as far as God is concerned in his faith, they are already the righteousness of God in Christ? In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he was, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. If God isn't counting their sins against them, why do we make that such a central effort of our preaching to condemn people for their sin? You see, Paul wasn't ashamed because... He lived in this new horizon of love minus judgment. Love is ascribing to every individual the unsurpassable value that God has for them. Minus your judgment. Minus living out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that tree? Remember Genesis? Remember that's where the fall came from? The fall came from partaking of the judgment of what's good and what's evil. We were never created to judge between good and evil, right and wrong, 
You're good. You're bad. You're going to heaven. You're not. I like the length of your dress. Uh, yours is too short. I mean, all of this mess that religion gets into. You're acceptable. Uh, he's not acceptable. It's living out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice, not the tree of the knowledge of evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good, too. <laughs> we don't live there anymore. We live out of a new horizon of loving every individual, no matter who they are, right where they are in their journey, and bringing this message to them. This is the gospel. This is the announcement. God loves you. He's redeemed you. And if you'll open your heart to Him and realize what He's done for you, He's located you in Christ and given you a new horizon. Heaven is your destiny. Isn't that good news? So you won't have any problem telling your friends that. Paul was not ashamed because the powers of darkness had been literally destroyed. Paul very rarely even brings up the devil or darkness, certainly never uh, praying against. We have to pray against. We have to cast out. Isn't it interesting that casting out devils stopped basically after the book of Acts? And Paul, generally speaking, never deals with it in any of his letters. In fact, what he deals with is this space right here between your ears, this six inches. And he says that the way to conquer the devil is to take authority over every thought, casting it down. Every thought and every imagination that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. We pull it down. We take it captive to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because it's really not about the devil. It's about that renewing of the mind that we need. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel because of the sheer force of righteousness. So let's recap that. Paul was not ashamed because he believed God got it right in the cross. He was not ashamed because he believed God has redeemed all of mankind back to his original innocence, and he's changed the world with that. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because love minus judgment was his message. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel because he knew all the powers of darkness had been disarmed and destroyed. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel because he was now living out of a new horizon. Heaven was his new, his new norm. He lived out of a force of righteousness. Watch this, verse 17. God here, in verse 17, gives us a glimpse into the gospel of justification. The good news tells us how God makes us right. In, what? The good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. He didn't ask your opinion. He didn't consult with me first. Boy, would I have messed that up with all my religious attitudes and moral lists. He didn't inquire me. By faith, God believing the world would respond to him, 
in faith. They'd respond to it. Here's what Paul said. It's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. So why are you preaching from a moral list of do's and don'ts? People in their conscience already know they're broken. They already know there's an emptiness inside. They're trying to fill it. That's why we try to fill it with all the things that we do. It's because we sense an emptiness. It doesn't help to tell people they're empty when they know they're empty. (laughs) And then define that emptiness for them. Well, you shouldn't be smoking. You shouldn't be drinking. You, You shouldn't be fornicating. You shouldn't have those same-sex desires. That's not holy. If you'd stop all that and come to church with me, (laughs) you see where all that's going? Do you see why that is such a... And it's not the good news. It's good advice, but it's not good news. And so Paul says, look, God did this thing by faith. He made us right in His sight, and He accomplished it from start to finish by faith. He redeemed our innocence. Obeying moral law code will never again be the standard by which man is judged to be righteous. It is not about what man must or must not do. It's about what Jesus has done. Look at somebody and say, it's about what Jesus has done. You know why preachers do that? Because we need a pause. <laughs> we're out of breath. If we're fat, we need to wipe our mouth. If we're, you know, getting white stuff in the, you know, corners, we, we need a drink because we're passing out. That's why preachers do that. Look at somebody else and say, man, he's honest. <laughs> You've never had so much fun in church. Come on. He says it's from faith to faith and not man's good or bad behavior. You see, here's the deal. The promise outdates performance as the basis of man's acquittal. Deuteronomy 28, the great chapter, every Bible student, every Sunday school Attendee knows Deuteronomy chapter 28, first 15 scriptures on the blessing. The rest of the chapter, twice as many verses, all on the curse. And boy, if, you're, if you don't live in it, if you don't live in obedience, God's going to, oh man, you should go through those curses sometime. I mean, you, you, you want to just have a bad day. You want to get discouraged and bummed out. Read Deuteronomy 28. So here's what the Lord had me do one day when I was reading through there and I started to get discouraged. First of all, he reminded me that righteousness was by faith, not by obedience to the law. But secondly, he said, you know what? All of these curses, if you'll flip them, it'll give you an idea of the blessing that's on the other side of that. That's what's yours. So when you're reading Deuteronomy 28, if you ever go back there again in your Christian life... After verse 15, read the rest of it, but flip it. So as you're reading about the curse, flip the curse and then declare it over your life as a blessing. Woo, glory, you'll be shouting by the end of that chapter. It's good. So Deuteronomy 28 will no longer be the motivation or the measure of what's right or what's wrong. Francois Dutrois, 
author of the Mirror Bible said, and I quote, The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. It declares how God succeeded to put mankind right with him. It is about what God did right, not about what Adam did wrong. And we start our evangelism with the fall, don't we? Every evangelism class I've ever been to, every book on evangelism I've ever read starts with the fall and how there's now this great separation, this, this, this cavern, this, this what are, chasm. Thank you. See, this is what Paul said in verses 9 through 11. I want to help you. I, I, I want you to bless me, but I'm going to help you too, Pastor, in your message. We're going to, we're, when, when you don't know, when you've lost your way, we are going to make suggestions so that you can make sense again. See, that's all scriptural. There's this great chasm. Every evangelism class teaches you to start with how man is separated from God, evil, fallen, and there's this chasm between you and God, you poor thing, you're on your way to hell. That is not the gospel. First of all, it's not an announcement of God's goodness, which is the meaning of the word gospel, good news, to announce, not to give advice. Secondly, it is not the reality of what Jesus accomplished when he died, was buried, and then rose again. It was the reality before that, but now since the resurrection of Jesus, it's changed. The whole world has changed. The whole system has changed. In the resurrection, mankind has been redeemed. Hallelujah. The Anglo-Saxon word for righteousness is right-wiseness. Wise in what is right. The Greek root word for righteousness is dyke which means two parties finding likeness in each other. I find my likeness in Christ. Christ is my life. When I'm in Christ, Jesus, God put me in Christ, and I became like Him. My thinking, my desires, my, my power, my wisdom, my, my direction in life is now like Christ. He is my new standard. He's my new horizon. He's my new heaven. The Hebrew word for righteousness, get this, is zadak, which refers to the beam in a scale of balance. You know what I'm talking about. Remember the old scales where it had the beam and then you would weight the, the left and right side to get a balance of right. What are we, what's the symbol for our justice system today? the scales, what's right and what's wrong. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, Jesus took the law, the moral code of right and wrong, and he nailed it to his cross, delivering us from that. And so that we are now, go there, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Reading from the mirror translation, Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10. It is in Christ that God finds an accurate and complete expression of himself in a human body. 
He mirrors our completeness and is the ultimate authority of our true identity. I was reading a blog. I'll, I'll stop. Uh, I, we've, we're done. We're done. Ushers, get ready with the prayer cards. Come, come stand up here. Where, where are my ushers? Come stand up here. Good morning, Tim. Man, you're good looking with your hair back. I like that. Does he get up out of bed that way? It's amazing. I was reading a blog this week, and as always, at the end of the blog, then, there's replies, responses to the blog. There's always pro and con. There's for and against. There's a I agree, I disagree. I want to read you two of the replies to this blog, the content, and what the author was trying to say from Christians. And I quote, Michael, telling you what God said he will do for you for the sins you are committing is what we are commanded to do. It's called the Great Commission, to teach the gospel to everyone, not cherry-pick and whitewash and warm and fuzzy scriptures, but the entire Bible, including the scriptures about you going to hell and being tortured for eternity for rejecting salvation through Yeshua's shedding of his blood for the remission of your sins. Ever been there? Was that important to say at that point for somebody that has never earned your trust? You don't even know them. You've never shaken their hand. You've never had a meal with them. You've never had a chance to smile at them. You've never had a chance to cry with them or say, I'm sorry, or rejoice with them and say, wow, how great is that, that that happened in your life? And you're already condemning them to hell? Really? Here's another response, much shorter. Quote, spoken like a true son of Satan, we true Christians have successfully battled against you and your father for centuries, and we win every time. Enjoy your eternity in hell. Don't you ever reply to a blog that way. I'll find out. 